Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get School for the Dogs podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I edit an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps? Is it possible to make money from a podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. My favorite part about using Anchor is that I can record whenever I feel like it directly into the app. I'm pretty busy, so I really appreciate how easy they've made it to podcast. So if you've always wanted to start your own podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of human podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get School for the Dogs podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I edit an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps? Is it possible to make money from a podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. My favorite part about using Anchor is that I can record whenever I feel like it directly into the app. I'm pretty busy, so I really appreciate how easy they've made it to podcast. So if you've always wanted to start your own podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of human podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to pop on to remind everybody that due to the COVID-19 crisis, School for the Dogs is currently offering a free 30-minute virtual session, a private session with one of our certified trainers through the end of the month only. So if you are listening to this, it is not yet May 2020. Please sign up. Whether you've already done with session with us before or you're a totally new client, no matter where in the world you are, we would like to help you. You can learn more at schoolforthedogs.com. Hi, my name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. I am here with Marie Policeno, who is basically School for the Dogs' CFO. I've known her for many years. She is our bookkeeper, accountant, and uh, both a cheerleader and a shoulder to cry on. Her company is called Dollars and Cents. That's Cents, S-C-E-N-T-S. She specializes in helping dog-related businesses. She is based in Montana. I've been wanting to interview Marie for a long time, but it usually occurs to me right around this time of year, around tax time, and I never want to bother her by asking to take her time to do an interview <laughs> when she's preparing people's taxes. But this year, tax day got moved, and I saw an opportunity. So I wanted to specifically have her here to talk about becoming a dog trainer and things to think about when making a choice to move to this new kind of career. I think she has an interesting perspective. Marie, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about how you first got into dog training? Absolutely. First, Annie, I'd like to thank you for having me join you today. That's quite an honor. So thank you for that. 
Well, my journey to being a dog trainer. So Annie introduced me as School for the Dogs, COO, accountant, bookkeeper, CPA, but I didn't always start out that way. So I started off my career actually working on Wall Street. I worked on Wall Street for some of the most prominent investment banks for almost 30 years. And while I was there, I got my first dog other than my childhood dog, which was a Portuguese water dog. And we started competing in agility and we started doing some obedience and rally. And people started to compliment me on my dog handling skills. And they said, you know, you ought to be a dog trainer. I said, a dog trainer? I said, I I can train my own dog, but I don't know about anybody else's. And they said, no, you really have some handling skills that are extraordinary. And we think that you would be a great dog trainer. So as I thought about it, I was working incredible hours on Wall Street and I was training my own dog. And I said, you know what? If I were to become a dog trainer, how would I go about it? I'm one who thinks that gaining knowledge and experience is sort of one of the prerequisites to becoming anything, along with having a passion for it. So I enrolled in the Academy for Dog Trainers out in San Francisco with Gene Donaldson. And I went out there. I took a short leave of absence from work. And I worked with Jean, and then I started to apprentice at St. Hubert's in New Jersey. I just want to interject for those of you who might not be familiar with Jean Donaldson. Jean Donaldson is an incredibly well-respected trainer of trainers, besides being a dog trainer. She is the author of the book Culture Clash, which is an excellent book, really about how to think about dogs and dog training in a way that makes sense and is behavior-based. And uh, yeah, and she started this incredibly well-respected program in San Francisco. It is operating, but it is now entirely an online school. Mm. And it is not just for counseling certificates, which is what I got as a graduate, having spent three weeks out there. It is now a full-time academy as some of you might know, or as Annie knows, it's known as the Harvard for dog training. And it is a grueling experience, but quite remarkable in that you would never get this kind of training. And I do believe now that it's probably a two-year course, as opposed to either the three or the three-month course that she used to offer through the SPCA. So Mm -hmm. she does this on her own now. And that's sort of how I developed some of the skills that I did to start with. And then after I attended the academy, You know, it's nice to say you want to be a dog trainer, but one, you don't have clients, you know, knocking at your door to say, hey, could you come over here and and do this for me? So I apprenticed for a couple of years at St. Hubert's, working primarily under Adrian Carson, who is a magnificent, magnificent trainer and now head of the SPCA over there for their training as well as their adoption centers. So I started doing that. And then in 2003, I attended the... The instructor training course that's owned by Dana Kreveling. Do you know Dana? She's in upstate New York. And what they do is they bring people in. um, It was the first time I was able to get to work with Sue Sternberg and other notable trainers in the area. And what you do is you actually train shelter dogs um, during this week-long course up there. So I got Joey, who was brought up from a, a large kill shelter in Arkansas, along with a bunch of other dogs. And I taught Joey how to do an agility course in less than a week. He was an incredible dog, and I had so much fun. And I actually won. That's why I had to turn around and look up at my thing. I won the Most Inspired Trainer Award for having done that. And so I said, you know, maybe now is the time I have some experience. I have knowledge. I have some confidence. What I don't have is a whole lot of time. But maybe I'll start my own business as a dog trainer and see what happens from there. And at the time, I was thinking of it as a long-term exit strategy from my work at Goldman Sachs. And so in 2003, I opened up my dog training business, and I had the most incredible success almost immediately. I was working not only my day job, but every night, every weekend with probably a six to eight week waiting list for dogs to train. And my passion for it just grew and grew and grew. And And so that's in New Jersey. This was in New Jersey. And then in 2006, my husband who had been ill got very ill And um, we found quite by accident that the climate in Montana was one that was going to improve his life a million fold because of the lack of humidity. He has rheumatoid arthritis. 
So we found a place out here. We found some land. We built a house, something we had never done before. And I thought, okay, here's my exit strategy. I'll leave and I'll open up my dog training business in Montana. Well, little did I know that was a big surprise. Dog training in different parts of the country is not the same. And so we live in a very rural area in Montana, and a lot of the dogs are viewed as sort of instruments of work. There's a lot of ranches out here, so there are a lot of ranch dogs. And unfortunately, the attitude towards training a dog is very, very different. People are not, A, willing to spend the time or the money to train their dogs to what I would consider a happy pet. Most of them are not kept inside. They are outside dogs, and if they fail to perform their function, they're euthanized in a not-so-humane way. And I know that's a, a big generalization, but in a ranch-rural community, that is generally what I have found. And so opening up my dog training business was not going to happen here. I did open it. That was in 2000. Well, in 2007, we moved out here. And I think in the past 13 years, I've had five clients. Yeah. So that wasn't going to work. So <laughs> how did I become the CPA for dog businesses? Well, it was just because of happenstance, the way that dog training wasn't going to be an option for me to earn a living. I said, you know, a lot of dog trainers have the passion, have the knowledge, have the experience, but they don't certainly know how to run a business. And so what I thought might be a sort of shot in the arm to the community was, how about if I married my financial skills, my dog training skills, and worked with people that in general, I really like, who are people who love dogs and are dog trainers or dog pros in any sense of the word. And so that's what I did. And in 2013, I opened Dollars and Cents. And I have many clients, all of whom have become personal friends as well as clients. And so that's what I do. <laughs> Boy, that was a really long story. <laughs> <laughs> I had the luxury of working with some of the world's and like foremost dog trainers to get some experience. But before I actually started to work with them, I had an idea that dog training was going to be mostly working with dogs. And boy, is that a misnomer. And that, I think, is probably the one biggest aha moment that people have who want to get into the industry, learn that dog training is so much about people training. It is less about training a dog than it is about training and working and being able to communicate with people. Because you can be the world's best dog trainer in the world. And quite frankly, if the dog doesn't work out in its environment with its owners, it's not going to have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is one of the things that people who want to get into the business really need to understand. A lot of people say, oh, gosh, I can't stand working with people anymore. They drive me crazy. I can't, you know, blah, 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 blah. I just want to work with animals. And unfortunately, if you want to have a business of being a dog trainer, it is so much of working with people, of course, with animals and having some skills and, and experience to do that. But that's the biggest, I think, aha moment that dog trainers or, or potential dog trainers have. There's such a myth that, you know, if you're good with dogs, that means you're not going to be good with people. But I, I don't agree with that at all because people who are good with dogs, it, you know, it's all about behavior. And uh, animal behavior certainly relates to human behavior as well. So if you understand one, ideally you should be understanding. So much of, you're so right, Annie, because so much of dog training is influence training, right? So mm -hmm. it, it's not only condition training and operant conditioning, but a lot of that classical conditioning is how do you influence any species to be able to do what you are wanting as a desired outcome? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think part of the reason why I, I like developing content and I like doing marketing, I mean, partially it's because it's my background. I started out as a journalist, but I also see it as a kind of animal training. You know, it's a game in the same way that dog training is a game. Like, how, how can I get these animals to do what I want them to do, whether it's training a dog to sit or, or getting someone to hire us? You know, advertising is, is really a kind of uh, way of... Um, of manipulating behavior, as is dog training. For those of you who might be here who don't know about me and the origins of School for the Dog, since Marie shared her, 
her how I became a dog trainer story. My The short version of my story is I was a journalist until around 2008, 2009 full-time and decided I wanted to do something else with my life, needed to do something else with my life, and thanks to the market crash, et cetera, et cetera, and I found myself sitting in the dog park a lot thinking, you know, I love spending time with dogs. I love talking to people about their dogs. How can I basically do this full time? And ended up going to the Karen Pryor Academy where I learned a lot. But yeah, for me, it was definitely a big mystery when I got out of the Karen Pryor Academy. Like, okay, I know how to train a dog, but how can I parlay this into some kind of viable? Like, I knew I was more passionate about it than I'd ever been about anything else, but it felt like a real mystery had a Absolutely. You know, as I mentor in both my careers, as I've mentored people, I said, what is it that you want out of this career? And when I worked in an investment bank, obviously the people that came in, they said money. And I said, okay. And how long is that passion going to last? Because if you're not doing this because you're passionate about it, go find something else to do because you will not succeed. And I believe that it to be true of any, any profession. And the first thing, you know, as I was thinking about today and and the talk we were going to have, I said, what is the primary quality that one I think needs to possess in order to be a dog trainer? And passion comes to mind as one of the top, but I don't think it's the top. It's one of three, but I think the primary notion that people should have when they're thinking about, do I want to be a dog trainer as my career is, do I have the knowledge and the expertise to be able to hold myself out as a professional in that industry. And I believe that to be true of anything, but particularly dog trainers, because, you know, the girl who does your nails, and I don't mean to be sexist about it, needs to have a license, but dog trainers don't. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people out there who hold themselves out as dog trainers who are not really good dog trainers. They may have trained their own dog, but they certainly aren't what we would call pillars of our community who use, you know, positive reinforcement and know what they're doing and know how to communicate it. So I think education, and that can come in a variety of ways. It can be in a formalized school like you and I had gone to. It could be working as an apprentice for somebody who is a qualified professional trainer. You know, when I became a, a CPDTKA, and I'll explain what that means, it's the certification for professional dog trainers that came about. I was one of 100 people in the world at that time in 2003 to seek that professional designation. Since then, it has grown a 10,000 fold. But it was sort of the idea that if you wanted to be looked at as a professional, then you needed to take the steps to, in fact, obtain the credentials that make you a professional dog trainer. You don't just walk out and say, hey, I'm a dog trainer when you go to the dog park because I know what I'm doing, because then you give everybody a bad name. (laughs) And and so passion's important, but knowledge and of course, skill after that, you can have all the book knowledge in the world, but if you can't wrangle dogs and you don't know how to read body language, you shouldn't be holding yourself out there to collect money from people as an expert in that field. When I was first starting out, you know, I had this certification from the Karen Pryor Academy, but I, you know, I, I was desperate to find someone to apprentice with. I, I never was able to find anyone to apprentice with. And I was very hesitant to say like, hey, I'm a professional dog trainer now, you know, give me your money. I, I'm, I'm wondering if that's something that you've encountered before with other people who are just starting out as dog trainers. I wasn't as hesitant, <laughs> but I was <laughs> But I think that's because of my financial background Mm -hmm. and sort of the way that I approached it. In terms of the certification, Annie, what I have found, I have been asked zero times Mm -hmm. what my certification is, why it's important, who cares about it. The only time it's actually made a difference is in my accounting business, as I am exclusively right now servicing dog professionals people recognize, oh, this woman knows my industry. She knows what dog training is about, is the only time it's actually been relevant. And the only time- Right, exactly. It only matters to other (laughs) dog trainers. Exactly. And the only other time that I've actually encouraged people to use that is when people are looking for a dog trainer in a certain geographic area, if I don't have Mm -hmm. a recommendation and they want to go look on the APDT website or wherever they're looking to search for a trainer, I tell them, make 
make sure that they have some sort of certification because you can just join some organizations by paying 75 bucks and you're listed on their list of trainers available and you may have, you know, get somebody who has zero criteria. For yeah, being a it's like it's like saying like you have a triple A card or something. It's just that's exactly like right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, but the general uh, public does not know that, and right, so right. you know they look for these training websites and they come across oh this person's a qualified trainer. I did have one mm-hmm. client in New Jersey who had looked up the APDT website after I moved, and they found somebody who came equipped with her shock collars and a whole bunch of other aversive stimuli as well as tools when they showed up at his apartment. And he said, oh, Marie didn't use any of these. What are, what are these for? And they went on to say, right. you know, had this whole discussion about, you know, aversive training versus positive training. And he ended up not letting her into the apartment, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> Do you ever take on clients who have a different training philosophy? Than, than you I have? actually don't. And it's because of my personal aversion to it. They may contact me. We can, we talk about what kind of business they have. If they, and it's only happened in one case, actually, where an aversive trainer has come to me and I said, I'm sorry, I can't work with you. We philosophically have a difference in terms of our approach. I certainly have, you know, my own feelings about how that works. And so I actually don't work with people who are aversive trainers. Yeah, I mean, rare is the CPA who asks their clients if they use shock collars. <laughs> no, but I, um, I at least have the luxury of being able to pick and choose um, the kinds of clients that I want to work with. You know, before I just was exclusive to dog professionals, I had, in order to start my business, I had other types of clients. You know, I had lawyers and real estate developers and airline pilots and, you know, airplane manufacturers and that sort of thing. And over time, I've released them to qualified professionals that, you know, I, I didn't just chop them off at the knees, but I released them to other professionals because I did only want to specialize and work with dog pro clients. So here's a, a question for you. I mean, one thing I, I really value about working with you, I should say, is of course that you know how to train a dog. I mean, I, I appreciate that. And I, I know you train horses too. And But to be honest, that doesn't matter to me as much as the fact that you like you know, you work with other businesses who offer similar services to ours. And so I appreciate that you can say, like, oh, why are you offering this? Or that's great that you're offering that. Or why are you charging this and not charging that like these other clients are? And I mean, I know you're not going to name names, but anyway, so I do wonder what people charge in other places. You know, obviously we're in New York City. Our prices are on the higher side, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm wondering if you can help put that maybe in perspective, at least for our listeners, if not also for me. But like, you know, down to the brass tacks, like what do dog trainers charge and what do dog trainers make in America today? Maybe not today, but under <laughs> under more normal circumstances. So I think it, it is geographic specific. You know, I have a lot of clients in the San Francisco Bay Area. I also have clients on the East Coast, you included. And I think for the most part, geographically speaking, I think that pricing is consistent I think what happens, Annie, is that trainers, because of the service that they're providing, tend to discount it more because they're people who want to help service the animal as much as they can. And a lot of people of that sort of ilk, if you will, a mentality are embarrassed to charge what they're worth. And I think that is across almost every trainer, except for a very few of mine, that they're reluctant to charge the real price for what they provide. And so I see a lot of discounting of that service in the form of packages, in the form of you know multi-series sort of programs that don't really charge the right hourly rate for the service being provided. I will share this with you, and it's dated information because it goes back to when I had my business in New Jersey. But I started out And I can't talk specific about any of my current clients because that would be sort of against the law um, for pricing. But I'll tell you back in 2003, 
when I started working with people and charging. I charged $525 for eight weeks of lessons, private in-home lessons, and I did all the travel and I did not charge for travel. And I thought, oh my God, like people are going to pay me $525. This is great. I love doing this work, blah, 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 blah. And then I said, geez, this is eight weeks of my time on an hourly basis. This is not like sustainable. I'm doing it. I'm having fun. I enjoy it. But hmm, let me try something. And I did. So I raised the price to $650 for eight sessions. And my waiting list grew, grew longer and longer. And I said, hmm. Let me try something else. How about 750? Not only was I keeping more clients and retaining more clients for add-on services, but my waiting list was still as long as it was. So I said, what if I did this for eight and a quarter for six weeks? Same result. So what I'm sharing with you is an economics lesson. Dog training is a price elastic market. People are willing to pay for a good service if you provide a good service. If you provide a you know mediocre service, then question how much am I charging? But what I found is that people who are willing to pay are willing to pay for really good service. So don't discount it. Now, mm -hmm. in a lot of places, as you're starting a business, you say, you know what, I can't charge as much as you know this person because I need to get a client base first. So you work towards that. But what I'm suggesting is that over time, as you build your reputation in your business, you can actually test your market. And that's what I'm suggesting you do. If you raised your price to, let's just say, for example, $1,500 for five sessions, you might not get any clients. <laughs> just that's mm -hmm. sort of at that end of the spectrum. But if you're charging, for example, in this example here, $500 now, and you've built your client base, you've built your reputation, test the market, raise your price and mm -hmm. see what happens. That's where the marketplace determines what's the right price for the service, not what your competitor's charging, although that's a guideline and it's, it's a guidepost, but it doesn't mean that you have to match them or that you have to undercut them in order to get that. Unless what your objective is, I'm trying to build market share and my reputation right now. Nobody knows me. I have to get mm -hmm. out there. I can't compete with the guy who's already established. So it depends what is where you are in that, in that evolution of your business building. What are the biggest challenges that you think your clients face as they try and start their own dog training businesses or run their own dog training businesses? One is how to address the prices and the other is internal costs. So rent, once you've established yourself, I would say that most dog trainers start out running their business out of their homes, okay, where they're going to clients on their own and sort of building up their business that way. When they start to grow and they start to look at a brick and mortar location, now you've made a huge commitment, right? So looking at rent and rent space and what's available and where you want to be is a huge leap from where you start out your business. So it depends, again, where you are in that cycle. Rent's a big one. And then payroll. Payroll is, it's a hard one because we want to encourage people to work in our industry to think, you know what, I can make a living doing this. I don't have to flip burgers at, you know, some fast food restaurant. This is a career path for me. And we want to be able to pay people appropriately. But we also have to keep an eye on how fast we grow our staff compared to what our revenue generation yeah. capabilities are. I think that the hardest things for me, I mean, I know the hardest things for me, two things. One has just been managing staff because on the one hand, I, I mean, I don't think I'm bad with people. <laughs> like I said, I think you can be good with dogs and good with people. But, you know, I've grown to see that human relations, <laughs> human resources, I never even really knew what people who worked in human resources or human relations did before. Like, you know, any place where I ever worked before the HR department, I, I called them if there was something wrong with my paycheck, I guess. <laughs> was, I, I remember, you know, hearing people were going to school for HR and I was like, do you have classes and signing paychecks? <laughs> like, no clue what it was. But now I understand that there's so much skill involved in managing groups of people. I mean, having a good 
a good understanding of uh, how behavior works certainly helps, you know, because in my opinion, it all has to do with behavior. But when you're dealing with humans, there, there's so many more inputs. The environment is so wildly large, varied. And even when you're dealing with people, everyone, you know, what's rewarding to one person isn't going to be rewarding to the next person. And what's aversive to one person isn't going to be aversive to the next person. And everyone has their own history of learning. And it's so incredibly complicated. And, and for me, difficult. And the other part of managing staff that's been hard for me, which relates to, you know, money, is uh, like I've said to you, I've come to realize like there's the boss I want to be and then there's the boss I can be. And, you know, sometimes the boss I want to be isn't a boss that is going to be able to keep the business going. Like I want to be as generous as I can to our employees. I, I want them to get paid well and not be overworked at all and to feel good about everything they're doing all the time. But at, at the end of the day, I also have to like take care of the business and make sure that the business is going to survive. Otherwise, nobody has a job. And, and that's been hard for me. I've managed large groups of people, and I would tell you that managing people is probably the hardest job that anyone has. You know, at one stage in my career, I was one of three women only that worked on a trading floor responsible for funding the firm. And this was back in 1993 when the first World Trade Center incident occurred. And all the guys left the trading floor and left me and my boss, who was a woman, to fund the firm. We had to come up with 21 billion dollars, billion dollars, while everybody else left and left the two of us sitting there. So I've had really hard jobs before. Um, and after that, I was actually given the head trader position and responsible for funding billions of dollars on a daily basis because we were the only two left. But of all the hard things that I've done in my career, managing people, is the hardest because everybody is motivated by something else. Right. You can't always read their minds. Little things to some people are huge things to others. And it's just really, it's the hardest part of the job. And that's why when I said in your cycle of growth, once you decide to expand beyond you are the only dog trainer in your business to hiring, you know, an assistant to hiring more people as, as you grow, that's the hardest part of it is managing the people. Yeah. I mean, two things I wanted to say. One was one thing I've learned about managing people. And it's funny because, you know, I, I have friends who I'll vent to about like being, you know, being a boss is really hard. And I have a lot of friends who are, are self-employed or, or are professors. My husband's a professor or journalist because I was a freelance journalist. And, and they'll say, you know, gosh, I guess, I guess the only time I've ever had to deal with employees is, is when I'm dealing with my kid's babysitter or maybe dealing with students is a little bit like dealing with employees. Anyway, it just reminds me that this isn't a path that I even really chose, just kind of happened and that it's not my life. It's just where I am in my life right now. And, and it's understandable that I might not have all the necessary skills because I've never had to deal with people in this way before. And, you know, it's a completely different ball of wax. And one thing I've learned in the past few years as our staff has grown is um, that the way people interact with their superiors, a boss or whoever, so much of it is about their projecting stuff on you. <laughs> like, you know, their feelings about me might have to do with their feelings about their parents or their spouse or, you know, whatever. It's not necessarily something like that exists inside of me. You know, and you and I have talked about that, how to like try and not take take things personally. But the other thing I think that's been really hard for me and for Kate is managing growth because like, yeah, we just started out. It was just me and Kate. We were in my living room when, when we first met you. And as you know, we had this really big fire and then that sort of pushed us first into working out of a dog daycare and then um, finding our first retail space and now in our second place. And uh, we started out just having some people kind of like volunteering with us. And then more and more people started to come on. And, you know, now we have, I don't know, 15, 20 employees and I, I, in this two-story facility. And, I, you know, I really never pictured things getting to this point. I'm psyched about it and it's exciting. But keeping on top of it all, you know, it's so hard. Like I think I was – I had the abilities – to manage something that existed in my living room and that was me and one other person. But I've really had to learn to 
ask for help in order to deal with being able to manage something that is the size of, of what we have now. If you were to plan it, you wouldn't probably not have expanded as exponentially as you did, as quickly as you did, that you would, you know, go through a stair step, perhaps, approach. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes opportunity presents itself and you just, you know, rise to the challenge, which you have. Okay, so we've gotten a few questions here. Jamie says, does CPDTKA indicate the trainer is only positive reinforcement based in their training? You want to take that one, Marie? CPDTKA is a positive reinforcement training certification, if you will. That does not mean that every professional trainer would not use punishment in the right circumstances and apply it appropriately. So there are, I'll, I'll get technical just for a second. There are four quadrants, basically, of training, positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment. And each one of those quadrants has a use time and place. at a time. Mm-hmm. That's right. You might want to look up LIMA, Jamie, L-I-M-A, least intrusive Minimally aversive is uh, how we try and approach things. I believe you can find information on Lima on the CPDT website. But yeah, you know, there might be times when punishment is what you need to use or possibly even negative reinforcement, although that's kind of like the worst of the quadrant. Negative reinforcement is like where someone shocks a dog until the dog sits and then they stop shocking the dog. Uh, That would be an example of negative reinforcement. But I should mention, though, that if a trainer's go-to method is punishment, especially something like, you know, using a shock collar, they they should not be CPDTKA certified. But, you know, they don't have CPDT (laughs) police out there. Although I should say there was an example of a dog trainer in New York City who was seeing clients who would then come to us and say, you know, I hired this guy, he put a shock collar on my dog, took him to the park, shocked him for three hours, and then charged us $700. It was very upsetting. And he did have the CPDTKA certification, and we did report him. And I believe they rescinded his certification. But, you know, I have to say it probably matters to (laughs) absolutely no one out there other than to him and maybe to us. Yeah, I'm just going to interject one thing just before the thought passes me. So CPDTKA is actually an exam that you take, okay? So you could have gone through all of the book learning, taken the exam, gotten certified, and in fact be an aversive trainer. So I think that more directly answers this person's question, Jamie's question. Another question here, how can I get better at learning how to train dogs with the hope of becoming a dog trainer if I don't currently have a dog myself? Very good question. Certainly, you can reach out to shelters near you, see if you can volunteer your time. You could foster a dog. (laughs) You could work with training a different kind of animal. You know, actually as part of Karen Pryor Academy for their professional course, you have to have a different kind of animal to train. You know, you can investigate places like Best Friends. We have our trainer, Anna Ostroff, has done, I guess you would call it like some mission-based vacations to Best Friends. I think they're in Utah will allow volunteers to come work at their shelter for, you know, a week or two at a time. I'll uh, make another suggestion just because mm-hmm. I've been there twice. I just think it's unbelievable. But you could also go to chicken camp where you clicker mm-hmm. click train chickens. And Terry Ryan and her husband Bill run the organization out of Squim, Washington, which is just off Vancouver. And so it's a week-long camp, if you will. And it is the most fun I think you will ever have. Yes. If you have an opportunity to train a chicken, train a chicken. (laughs) Obsessed. I did a one-week program four years ago with an incredible trainer named Parveen Farhoudi, who was running a program in in Massachusetts. It was actually a five-week intensive program. I just did one week of it and would have gladly done the whole thing, though. You learn so much about training when you're training a chicken because, you know, you you cannot force them to do anything. They do not want to be touched with you. And uh, you really see the power of operant conditioning. We, We were working on differentiation in the session that I did teaching 
chickens to differentiate between different shapes and different colors. And it was wonderful. So, you know, I'm an agility um, nut. The first time I went, we did discrimination as well. The second week, we actually trained them to do an entire agility course. We just had a ball. And you know what? If you're looking for some way to hone your skills as a dog trainer with a clicker, there is no one that's going to teach you more than a chicken. (laughs) So, yeah, definitely go train a chicken. But, you know, beyond that, I think if you can find someone to apprentice with, go be an apprentice. Offer to pay the person, you know, so maybe that'll help the person take it seriously. Because, you know, it can be overwhelming. It can be a lot of work to be a mentor. And if you can find a good mentor, snatch up that opportunity. I should also mention that we do have a dog trainer professional program. We have trained up, I think, eight or ten apprentices now. We currently have three people going through the program. And we're working to put part of it completely online and also to make part of it free So just wanted to give that a little plug. And if you're interested, just keep following us or email me at annie at schoolforthedogs.com. And I will make sure you get notified when uh, we open that back up again. Marie, any any other advice for how I can be a better business owner, dog business owner? Keep talking to me. (laughs) So, you know, obviously we're talking in the middle of the, the COVID 19 quarantine. And I'm curious to hear from you where you think dog businesses are going to land. And uh, do you think there's going to be an influx of people looking to dog careers as a plan B? Well, it all depends. With, you know, 16 million people being out of work, I think everybody's imagination is, is going wild. For the most part, I think those of my clients that I'm being honest here, I don't think there's anybody that isn't going to come through the other side. They may come through it differently. They may start to think about how to live on less money and put more money towards savings so that they have, you know, something more in their back pocket than they do today. So when the water, you know, faucet turns off again, God forbid that it ever does, they're more prepared for it. So I think everyone is going to come through. I think they'll come through for the most part intact, but thinking about things differently. I do think the federal assistance that's going to come through because I haven't seen anybody get any money yet. I think that will be helpful. It just depends what happens and how they reopen society in the next couple months that will determine the fate of a lot of businesses. But I think the dog pro industry is nimble enough that it will be able to zig and zag through this. And it is a commodity that people need and people want. You know, in some states, I know Rhode Island yesterday declared dog training an essential service, which I'm hoping is going to start becoming much more widespread because it really is. It's a valuable service that we provide to people. And people are experiencing now what it's like to be home with their pet who may have started training or was about to start training. And they're pulling their hair out saying, oh my gosh, when are these people going to open? So I think the demand is going to be pent up and that it will create opportunities for people as long as we can get through financially the next, I'd say next eight weeks before things have to, you know, people have to make really hard decisions. So if someone is, let's say, newly unemployed, thinking about becoming a dog trainer, what is your suggestion for the, like, what is the first action step they should take? I think the first step would be to work with someone that is a dog trainer. Go, you know, take your daughter to work, take your sort of mentee to work with you. I think without experiencing what it's like, because there are ups and downs as a dog trainer, there are certainly, I'll just share a quick experience. I have Portuguese water dogs now and a rescue Shih Tzu, but we had um, Porties and Weimaraners were basically our two breeds. And one of my Weimaraners became dog aggressive after being attacked. And it's one of the reasons that I have a special certification from Jeans Academy for aggression in dogs um, was because of my Clint. So it's not always a happy ending or what you wish for this dog. And, you know, Clint could never be around non-familial dogs for the rest of his life and it had to be managed. And so there are heartbreaks associated with being a dog trainer. It's not all fun and games and it's not always 
an answer. I've only had to recommend euthanization twice for dogs that were just, they just weren't wired right. They just weren't made for this world and they were a danger to the community and the family they lived in. So go work with a trainer is my first recommendation. Go live with them day in, day out for, you know, a period of time. See what it's like to be a dog trainer. See how easily you might get burnt out from it because it's not for everyone. And that doesn't mean that you're any less of a person, but it is very intense. It is very emotional, much like our veterinary caregivers. You know, people think, oh, great, I get to work with all these and I save all these animals. Well, there's also, you know, cases that don't work out and it takes an emotional toll on you. And so you need to experience Mm -hmm. those things before you decide, yeah, this is what I'm going to do because it's all fun and games. So step one, find a mentor. can be elusive, but you're suggesting to find a mentor, which I'm suggesting too. I just think offering to pay the mentor might might make it a little bit easier. I think that's the first step that I would take. You know, after that, mm-hmm. if you want to invest some money and go do some other things, fine. But I think your first step is to find somebody local. There's somebody local that is a dog trainer mm-hmm. that you can work with. And, you know, if you're having trouble finding a mentor, you could also go to a conference. I love dog training conferences. There is um, one held by the Association for Professional Dog Trainers every year in the fall. Flickr Expo happens a few times a year in different parts of the country, and that can be a really great way to just learn a lot, meet new people. Also, um, Tawzer.com, T-A-W-Z-E-R, is a place you can go online to find lots of lectures from really established dog trainers. Uh, Okay, one last question we got here. Are there any books you would suggest that aspiring dog trainers read? Sure, gosh, there's so many books I I suggest. There's probably four or five that I suggest a lot. One would be, and it fits into this conversation, would be Culture Clash by Jean Donaldson, which is, she's a fabulous writer, and it's really a book on how to train a dog, but really how to think about dog training in a way that makes sense. And the other writer that I would suggest looking at, who we also spoke about in this conversation, is Karen Pryor. Her books, specifically Don't Shoot the Dog, which is a Bible of mine, a kind of Bible of mine. It's not actually about dog training. It's really it's really about behavior. And uh, her more recent book, Reaching the Animal Mind, that is a bit more specifically on clicker training and some of the science behind it. How about you, Marie? I think you would recommend... Culture Clash too. Um, am I right? You know what? Great minds think alike. It was my Bible when I, when I got mm-hmm. my first dog, and it's still the book that I recommend to every new dog owner. Yeah. Marie, thank you so much for your time. And of course, thank you for all that you do for me and for School for the Dogs. I think you're the best. Anyone listening here, if you have a dog training business and you are looking for an accountant, dollars and cents is the place to go. You can find Marie on her website, which is dog-pro-cpa.com. Thank you so much, Marie. Perfect. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, everyone. Take care. This conversation actually has been an abridged version of a webinar I did last week with Marie. You can find a link to it in the show notes. And I wanted to close out today with a voicemail I just got. Our client, Nikki, whose dog is a hilarious little Frenchie named Mookie, just left us a beautiful, beautiful Yelp review. It was so nice (laughs) that I asked her if I could include it in this podcast episode, and she graciously offered to read it. Hi, Annie. I hope all of the School for the Dogs team is coping well with COVID-19. I guess the loss of our daily routines as we know them has put serious emotional strain on all of us. It comes as no surprise to me that all of the social media feeds are flooded with photos and videos of our dogs as they provide a real companion in coping through all the everyday stress. With that being said, I just wanted to drop you a quick voicemail and say thank you for everything that the School for the Dogs team have been doing. I also wanted to just quickly share with you the recent review that I wrote for you guys on Yelp, mainly because I think in these difficult times it's important to thank the people that have done the most for us. 
As new puppy parents who work long hours, we scoured the internet for training and walking services and read many reviews before calling school for the dogs. They were beyond professional and put us at ease straight away. These were the people that we wanted to work with. Our pup, Mookie, was 10 weeks old when Anna, Ostroff and the team started working with him. We chose an intensive five-week package and let's be clear, this meant that the School for the Dogs team were in our home every single day, often without us even being home, for five weeks teaching our pup the very basics. The level of trust between us is high. We have been able to leverage all of the basics for him from this training for his future training and development since. In addition to training, we also use School for the Dogs for walking. We do one-hour walks and play two times a day. Our pup's main walker, Sasha, is genuinely awesome and one of the most caring people we've ever met. While we do have nest cams around our home, we never feel the need to check in. Our dog loves Anna, the other trainers, and Sasha, and we love them in return. We know our dog is safe, cared for, learning, and they write the most incredible summaries of their time together, so we understand his progress and we also have to work on. And yes, we humans get our homework from school for the dogs too. He is now 10 months, and over the course of his eight months with us, we have attended School for the Dogs puppy playtimes, carried on our one-to-one weekly training with Anna, and the two walks per day. But most recently, we enrolled Mookie for Tricks Class Level 1. After week one in the studio, Corona was in full force, and we watched School for the Dogs impressively mobilize their entire team to remote learning and Zoom. We thought remote learning with a puppy could be tough but Anna spends one-to-one time with each dog troubleshooting when needed, and it's fun watching six human parents try tricks with their dogs. We learn from each other, and we sometimes get a good giggle too. We have loved the last four weeks of classes. Moo recently graduated level one and mastered some awesome tricks like hide, sit pretty, target, spin, the list goes on. He did so well with his tricks class that Anna offered to test Moo for his official AKC tricks novice level. There was nothing in it for her, but just something she knew I would appreciate and a way for us to all celebrate our dog's hard work. He of course passed and is eagerly awaiting his official AKC certificate. I'm actually not sure who's more excited, Moo or Anna. We now signed him up for tricks level two, five weeks of remote classes during COVID-19. We love the fact our dog is still learning in the convenience and safety of our home, and it also gives us something to work on with him during the long home days when he misses his School for the Dogs pals terribly. In summary, I cannot speak more highly of the School for the Dogs team, and in particular Anna and Sasha. Anna has been there for us since day one. We troubleshoot any issues immediately and efficiently. Along with our dog, we adore them, and when people tell us how wonderful our dog is, we accredit a huge portion of that to the time these guys spend with him. So Annie, just to say thanks, and good luck with everything, we can't wait to see you guys soon. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.